know what one of my favorite historical movies is? He asks rhetorically over a one-way medium. One of my favorite historical movies is 300. What? Yep, 300. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, 300 is a 2006 film by Zack Snyder, based on the comic book by Frank Miller and Lynn Varley. It tells the story about the famous Battle of Thermopylae in 480 BCE, when 300 Spartans, and about 10,000 not Spartans, heroically held off the advancing Persian army for three days before being killed to a man. The film 300 is about as wildly factually inaccurate as you can possibly get. It has Spartans doing superhuman leaps and flips to cut down dozens of Persians at a time. It has rhinoceroses the size of double-decker buses. There are 10-foot-tall ogres with arms like tree trunks. Because it's a Zack Snyder film, there's a lot of slow motion. But with all of that, and in its own way, 300 is one of the most factually accurate historical movies I can think of. What? Yep, you heard me. Because the framing device for the film isn't an historical representation. It's a story. In the film, a single Spartan warrior escapes the battle. So realistically, it should be called 299. But I guess that doesn't really flow off the tongue as well. But the idea is that there's this Spartan warrior, Delios, played by David Wenham in the film. He's critically wounded during the fighting and he's sent back to Sparta. He's not present for the heroic last stand. And when he gets back to Sparta, he tells the Spartans the story of what happened at the Battle of Thermopylae. And he tells us his version of it. He tells us a story. In his version, there weren't 30,000 Persians, there were a million. In his version, the Persian arrows really were so numerous that they actually blocked out the sun. In his version, Leonidas actually did manage to wound Xerxes. Is that what actually happened? Absolutely not. But it's what Delios tells us happened. And that makes it a pretty good movie. There are a good number of people who slam 300 for its outlandish take on the Persian Wars, but when Herodotus of Halicarnassus, in his seminal work The Histories, tells us that Darius the Great slew two wizards, two wizards, in hand-to-hand combat, these same people will give him a free pass because he's just trying to get people interested in history. I want you to keep that idea in mind for today's tale. Today we're going to be leaving behind the arm wrestle for Western civilization and head east. We're going to China. 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 Today's contestant is the archetypal example of what History Go Time is all about. He's a mortal man who, through the mists of time, has transcended credulity. Someone who has dozens, hundreds of awesome stories told about him, each more amazing than the next. And each and every one of these stories more than likely never happened. Or if they did, were nowhere near as epic as the legends tell. But I choose to live in a world where they did happen. Reality is so often disappointing, why not choose the best version of it? In this show, I'll be at my most liberal when blurring together facts, legends, and outright myths. This is me wearing my storyteller hat. It's not my facts and sources and data hat, which, while I do enjoy wearing it, does not a good podcast make. 
Ultimately, I'd like to pass along my passion for history and awesome stories from the past. I hope that some of that will rub off on you and you'll go and grab a book and find the sources and prove how and where I'm wrong. Honestly, nothing would make me happier. If you want dry, boring, accurate history, then go jump on the great courses. But if you're still here, then buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy, because I'm about to tell you about Zhuge Liang, just some of his astonishing tales of adventure, and what is probably the most tactically significant guitar solo of all time. First of all, moving forward, I'm going to be absolutely butchering some Chinese pronunciation here. I apologize in advance, I can't help being Australian. The source I'll be borrowing most heavily from is Romance of the Three Kingdoms by Luo Gongzhong. It's a pretty famous work. It's 800,000 words long and has over a thousand different narrative characters in it. It's the eastern equivalent of the collected works of William Shakespeare in scope, license, and cultural impact. Kind of a big deal. Romance of the Three Kingdoms is based on the more historically accurate and much drier Records of the Three Kingdoms by Chen Shu. Luo Gangzhong looked at records and decided that, while it was pretty good, it didn't have enough epic three-way sword fights in it, and he sought to fix that. And I'm inclined to agree with him. Everything is better with sword fights. The book is just so much more epic in scope, in every way, shape, and form. It is. There's a chapter where a general jumps his horse across a canyon, Dukes of Hazard style. It's an awesome book. I highly recommend you check out Romance of the Three Kingdoms. But back to the man of the moment. Zhuge Liang, also called Chuko Liang, the courtesy name of Kong Ming, or by his nicknames Wolong or Fulong, Crouching Dragon or Sleeping Dragon respectively, was a Chinese general and politician in the late 100s, early 200s CE. While he was primarily a leader in both the military and political spheres, he also dabbled in poetry, writing, engineering, and did a bit of inventing on the side. When I imagine Zhuge Liang, I think equal parts Uncle Iroh from Avatar, Q from James Bond, and Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. The actual historical evidence suggests that overall, while Zhuge Liang was a great statesman and politician, he was at best a competent military commander. His actual win-loss ratio isn't great, but on a granular level, he produces so many amazing individual tricks and feats that he gets bumped up into the historical mad lads category. So, for all of this, you have to remember that China, at this point, wasn't one cohesive empire. It was a bunch of small states all vying to be king of the hill. China is often like this through history. It takes a huge effort to unify it under one rule and one vision, and it quickly breaks up into factional fighting again when your Qin Shuangs of the world die. Zhuge Liang was a proud resident of the state of Shu Han. That's going to be important as we move forward. You've got to remember which of these nearly identical states he was from. Zhuge Liang was from the state of Shu. Zhuge Liang was the go-to guy for when you wanted something cool to happen. He was the tactical level John Wick. For instance, once upon a time, Zhuge Liang was sent to pacify the barbarian bandit king Meng Huo and his rebels who had been stirring the pot in southern Shu for a while. Just... Robbing, raiding, just generally making everyone's life miserable. 
Now, bandits aren't the kind of thing you send John Wick to deal with, but Meng Huo had done the ancient Chinese political equivalent of stealing Zhuge Liang's car and shooting his dog. So Baba Yaga is getting sent in. Pretty much as soon as Zhuge gets there, he ambushes Meng Huo and catches him and his army. Meng Huo starts complaining and basically saying, no fair. This was an ambush, it wasn't a fair fight, it doesn't count. As if in war, things like ambushes and fair fights actually count. But Zhuge Ling, like I said, is a mad lad. He says, alright, fine. You and your men are free to go. Go get a good night's sleep. Tomorrow we'll have a proper battle. And he lets Meng Huo and his men go. And the next morning they have a battle. And Meng Huo is outmaneuvered by Zhuge Liang, and he is captured again. And again, Meng Huo is like, well, we didn't get to have a proper battle. You did all of this tactical bullshit. Where's the heart? Where's the love? You know, this wasn't man on man. This was actual tactics and maneuvering and things. And again, Zhuge Liang lets him go. And again, he outmaneuvers him and captures him again. And this happens seven times. On the seventh time, Zhuge Liang just says, bro, how long are we going to keep doing this? And finally, Meng Huo replies, yeah, all right, you might be onto something here. I guess I'll clean up my act and stop being such a muggins. And that was where the rebellion ended and the bandit raid stopped. There was one incident where the state of Shu sent Zhuge Liang to a neighboring kingdom in order to broker an alliance against the most dominant force in the region, the Wei. Uh, during this period, the Wei are kind of like the evil empire, at least according to the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. If you look at the records of the Three Kingdoms, opinions vary. But during this period, the Wei had the biggest army, and they liked to let everyone know it, which upset states like the Shu. So Zhuge goes down to this neighboring kingdom, and he meets with their head of state to seal the deal. But the general in charge of this kingdom, Zhu Yu, he's not on board. He's been drinking the haterade on Zhuge Liang for a while now, and the two do not get along. So it was a bit of a bit of a bristly meeting between Zhuge Liang and Zhao Yu. So Zhao Yu comes up with a plan. He says to Zhuge, Alright, I'll form an alliance with you on one condition. We're a bit short of ammunition here. If you can come up with a hundred thousand arrows in ten days, I'll sign on the dotted line. It's alliance time. Hands in, mighty ducks, let's go. But, if you don't come up with the goods, I get to cut off your head. And Zhuge Liang responds with, Bitch, please, ten days? I can do it in three. The gauntlet having been thrown down, it is now on like Donkey Kong. So Zhuge Ling gets a bunch of boats together, and then he has his troops get to work making dummies out of straw. Kind of like a bunch of scarecrows. By the time all of this is done, it's nearly by the end of the third day, the quite literal deadline, and Zhuge Ling puts the dummies on the boats, and then he sends these boats down a river towards the hostile kingdom of Wei, where there was a stronghold on the river. And then, as if on cue, a fog rolls in and covers the entire river and the surrounding region. Visibility plummets to practically nothing. At this point, Zhuge Ling starts beating drums and shouting orders, and, and makes it, he's making it sound like that he's attacking from the river with this massive amount of troops, launching an amphibious assault on this fortress of the Kingdom of Wei, and it's all battle stations. 
The way soldiers, they can't see shit. All they can see is the outline of boats and what looks like troops standing on the decks of these boats. So they start unleashing arrow fire. It's just like this iron rain of arrows while these boats float down river. Just wave after wave after wave of arrows, just knock and release for about half an hour. And nothing happens. Eventually, the boats leave the area where they're picked up downriver by Zhuge Liang's troops. And embedded in the hull and deck of every boat, and pincushioning every straw dummy standing there on the deck, were arrows. Well over the hundred thousand arrows that were promised, and then some. See, Zhuge Liang was something of an amateur meteorologist. He'd read the weather, he knew when there was going to be a thick fog on the river, and he saw an opportunity to look like an absolute baller, and he took it. He had a full ten days to play with, but he knew it was going to get misty on the third day, he knew he was holding a royal flush, and he raised the stakes accordingly. This isn't the only time he did this, either. At the famous Battle of Red Cliffs, one of the largest naval engagements in history, and the one where Zhuge Liang returned all of the way arrows that he'd borrowed, part of the reason that the Shu Alliance was successful at this battle was because they had the prevailing winds with them. When you're having a naval battle with sailboats, you really want to have the wind on your side. And for the Shu, it was. Zhuge Liang knew they'd have the prevailing winds, because he knew how weather worked. But this is still the year 200 CE, it's not exactly a scientifically literate period, not even in China. And naturally, Zhuge Liang didn't divulge his knowledge of weather patterns and convection. He took the far more sensible path of claiming that he was a powerful wizard who could control the weather conjuring favourable winds for his navy and sending powerful gales against his enemies. As Arthur C. Clarke said, any sufficiently developed technology is indistinguishable from magic. Zhuge Liang wasn't a full-time X-Man, though. He was also a bit of a tinkerer. There's an invention that is falsely attributed to him, so much so that it bears his name, but he didn't actually invent it. He simply made a number of improvements to the design. It was a weapon known as the Chukonu, and it was essentially a hand-sized semi-automatic crossbow. If you think that a semi-automatic crossbow pistol is awesome, that's because it is. But, hold your horses, it did have some drawbacks. The main one was that it didn't have the punch of a regular crossbow. See, the thing with your standard crossbow is that it has an insane amount of range and penetration. Uh, so much so that well into the Middle Ages, there were armies petitioning the Pope to ban them because they were considered unfair. You take a knight who was trained in martial arts from the time he could walk, put him in a suit of armor that costs more than a block of land, and put him in a field against an illiterate hick with a crossbow, and it's odds on that Lancelot is taking a long dirt nap. That's why they wanted crossbows banned. The Chukonu couldn't do that. Because you had to cock it by hand, not through tension and torsion, it was essentially a dart thrower. But it could put out a lot of bolts in a short amount of time. It wasn't good against an armoured enemy, but if someone wasn't wearing armour, then they were going to be having a very bad day. This weapon had existed for hundreds of years before Zhuge Liang, but he took it mainstream with ideas like, hey, check it out, I made a pulley system to improve the rate of fire, and, hey, 
What if we coated the bolts with horrible searing poisons? Just like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs didn't invent computers, they just put them within the reach of the common man, so too did Zhuge Liang allow the average Joe to make it rain toxic darts. He also invented signal balloons, small hot air balloons with flags on them to relay orders to troops in the field. It's not as flashy as Ang Lee-style crossbows akimbo with poison tips, but it is probably more impactful in a military sense. Communication and coordination on a battlefield is as crucial as it is bloody hard to do, and having orders written in the sky makes it a hell of a lot easier. Zhuge Liang also invented the bow. That's B-A-O for anyone that's uh, doing this phonetically. For those of you that are unfamiliar, a bao is kind of like a bun-slash-dumpling thing that can be sweet or savory and filled with all kinds of awesome things like minced meat or jam. They are absolutely delicious. These are little balls of happiness. Zhuge Liang invented that. For everything else that Zhuge Liang did, or probably didn't do in his life, I think this is the most amazing. He essentially saw a glaring dumpling-shaped hole in the universe and said, no, this will not do. I find it amazing that a famous general invented an equally famous food. It's kind of like if Mongolian beef were actually invented by Genghis Khan. And now we have Bao. And Pixar can make a terrifying short movie where one comes to life. If you've not seen Pixar's Bao, it's a seven-minute film about loneliness toxic narcissism, second-degree murder, and cannibalism, and all marketed to children. What were we talking about? Oh yeah, Zhuge Liang. The best story of all, and one of my favorite stories of all time, is the tale of the empty fort. Over history, this has become known as the empty fort strategy. It's become important enough to be turned into a doctrine. In a series of campaigns known to history as the Northern Campaigns, practical if not terribly creative, Zhuge Liang's Shu led a series of campaigns against their age-old Hatfield and McCoy-style nemesis, the Kingdom of Wei. These campaigns involved some absolutely massive battles, hundreds of thousands of troops facing off against each other. It resembled the kind of stalemate and slaughter that you'd expect to see on the Western Front in World War I, and this is back in 200 CE. In the middle of this campaign, the Shu suffered a major defeat at the Battle of Jiting, which had a domino effect of shattering the entire front. As a side note, Zhuge Liang would later have stern words with the commanders who had lost the Battle of Jiting. Uh, some of those stern words were, I'm very disappointed with you, and the sentence is death. So the Shu defeat allowed the Wei forces to push the front back. This meant that the strategically important town of Zhicheng was in danger of being surrounded. Why was the town of Zhicheng strategically important? Because it was Zhuge Liang's command post. This excited the army of Wei and their commander, a guy by the name of Sima Yi. Sima Yi had long been at odds with Zhuge Liang, and the two had a bit of a Muhammad Ali-Joe Frazier rivalry going on. So the thought of being able to capture Zhuge Liang, the big dog, had Sima Yi practically salivating. This was like the USA finding out where Osama bin Laden was hiding. Sima Yi and his Wei forces commenced the ancient Chinese version of Zero Dark Thirty. So Sima Yi grabs as many troops as he can and he rushes at full pace down to Zhichang. Meanwhile, in Zhichang, 
Zhuge Liang knows that SEAL Team Liu is on the way to mess up his day, and there's bugger all he can do about it. He's got an honor guard of about 200 men with him, but the rest of his army is elsewhere across the front. No one can get there in time to defend him. What do you do? Well, as we've established, Zhuge Liang is a showman. He spent years cultivating the persona of being a wizard. It's time to get his Gandalf on. He orders some of his men to dress as civilians, peasants and workers. He has them perform mundane duties like sweeping the streets or gathering water from wells. He sends the rest off to hide wherever they can. Then, instead of locking and barring the doors, he has them all swung wide open. And finally, the headline act, he gets up on top of the main gates and mans the ramparts. No troops, no bodyguards, just Zhuge Liang, on his own, against an entire army. When Sima Yi and his army come into view, they see the town of Zhicheng wide open. There are no fortifications, no traps, no defenses, the gates are wide open, they see no enemy troops. All they see are a few villagers doing village things. And there, at the center of it all, on top of the main gate, is Zhuge Liang. And at this point, Zhuge Liang pulls out his Guqin. A Guqin is a large-ish, seven-stringed musical instrument. I guess the closest analog is a cello. But in my mind, the way I picture it, it's a guitar. Zhuge Liang pulls out a guitar. On top of the walls, in front of an army sent to kill him personally, he begins to shred. Now, none of the historical records tells us exactly which face-melting guitar solo he rocked up there, but logic tells us that it was probably through the fire and flames by Dragon Force. Now, it's at this point that Sima Yi goes into full Admiral Akbar mode. How could they be jamming us if they don't know... We're coming. It's a trap! It's a trap! Our troops cannot withstand metal of this magnitude. Sima Yi knows that Zhuge Liang has a reputation as a somewhat cautious and calculating commander. And this is one of history's cases where overestimating your enemy can be even more dangerous than underestimating him. Where reputation can become as much of a battlefield weapon as tactics or intelligence or flamethrowers. Sima Yi thinks that Zhuge Liang is far too cautious for him to have been cornered like this and facing annihilation. He just wouldn't make that kind of blunder. And there's definitely no way that, if he were expecting a siege, he'd be in the fortress alone, or that he'd open all the gates. And there's absolutely no way that, if he were expecting a fight to the death, he'd be standing on the ramparts in full view of everyone rocking out a sweet rendition of November Rain. So Sima Yi decides that this is definitely 100% a trap, and he withdraws. He packs up his things and he goes home. And Zhuge Liang manages to save himself and his troops and live to fight another day all through the power of rock. And that's the story of the most tactically important guitar solo in history. So do I believe all of these tales about Zhuge Liang? Well, I'm pretty sure the one where he wiped out an enemy army single-handedly by opening a portal to the interdimensional plane of wind and ghosts 
and then using his chi to ensnare enemy troops in a maze of phantom rocks probably didn't happen. But wouldn't it be awesome if it did? And that's pretty much how it goes with Zhuge Liang. There isn't a lot of evidence to support most of the tales about him, but then again, the evidence to the contrary is mostly through omission. There's still a chance that Zhuge Liang was as great as the Chinese folklore says he is. There's still a chance that he was a weather-controlling archmage who could summon ghost mazes. There's still a chance that he could defeat enemy armies with the power of rock. And all evidence suggests that, at his worst, Zhuge Liang was an exceptionally talented politician who managed to keep the threads of China from fraying even further during one of its many, many periods of civil unrest. There's a scene in the similarly historically accurate film Braveheart, where William Wallace is forced to defend his reputation in front of his troops, and address the weight of expectation and rumour and hyperbole that have engulfed him. It's a good film as it is, and William Wallace is still a fascinating character as is, but wouldn't both the movie and the man be a lot more interesting if William Wallace, the Braveheart Scottish national hero, actually could shoot lightning out of his eyes and thunderbolts out of his ass? I'm simply extending that courtesy to Zhuge Liang. The world needs larger-than-life characters. The truth is often painful and disturbing. Is it too much to ask for some sugar to coat that pill? Nations need their cultural icons. Ned Kelly wasn't some Robin Hood rogue with a heart of gold. He was a rampant psychopath who built a suit of Iron Man armor to murder police with. Joan of Arc was a famously terrible commander who nearly killed herself and her troops so many times that her subordinates would actually let her sleep in on the day of battle so that she couldn't take command. George Washington never told his father that he couldn't tell a lie, but he did have slaves whipped for walking on his lawn and ordered multiple pogroms to wipe out Native Americans. But they're still cultural icons. Rance Stoddard never shot Liberty Valance. It's just a better story if he did. Print the legend.